Let's open our Bibles this morning to John chapter 6, very lengthy chapter, and there's a lot here, and this is a pretty significant chapter, as Jesus just reveals to his disciples, to the world really, that he is the bread of life, and as I consider that, you know, when we think of, excuse me, we think of the bread of life, it reminds me, in Deuteronomy, you recall that Moses, when he spoke to the children of Israel, before they went into the promised land, he said to them that God had humbled them, and he allowed them to hunger, and he fed them with manna, which their fathers did not know, neither did they know, that he might make them know that man shall not live by bread alone, But man lives by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. From the mouth of God. Isn't it true that the food, the things that we eat, the things that we see all around us, everything is temporal because we live in a physical universe, but we know that there is a spiritual universe which ultimately encompasses all of it. In fact, I believe that everything that is physical is a representation, if you will, of the spiritual entities around whatever that is. In certain cities, you can see it. You can go in and you can tell when there's order in a city. Everything is nicely groomed, usually. And, and of course, you can't always bet on this if you're a betting person, which I'm not. But you, you can't always, this doesn't always work. But when you see order and you see uh, people being cared for and laws being upheld, there's order and it shows in the physical realm all around you, wherever that is. But you go to other places, and you see just a total breakdown, and you understand that there's elements here that are behind the scenes that are evil. And and of course, those elements are always evil, but I think you understand what I'm saying. Even in the natural, there's a, there's an, um, uh, a way of those things showing themselves, making themselves manifest in the physical realm. But the physical realm is only here. We're, we only enjoy that for a short period of time. In fact, most of us, you know, if we live to be 70, 80, 90, and some even maybe 100, you are blessed because you've lived a long time here in the flesh. But what is that, honestly, in comparison to eternity? The Bible tells us that it is like a vapor. Our, our life here is but a vapor. It's here and it's gone tomorrow. Like the grass that grows up in the morning and the evening, it's hewn down and thrown into the fire. It's, it comes and it goes. And the older we get, we see this in family and we see it in friends. And it brings a gravity, doesn't it, to our lives. It brings a gravity to our own relationship with Jesus. Because we realize that, Lord, you can feed me and you've been providing for me all this time, but I know that you've provided for me well beyond the physical. You've, you've prepared a place for us. Isn't that what he told his disciples before he left? On that night that he had the last supper with him, what did he tell them? I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. Jesus has prepared a place and we will be with him forevermore. And we'll be changed in the twinkling of an eye, putting off this old body, this body of the flesh, receiving a new body like the body of Jesus, which is a celestial body, one that can withstand any temperature, one that can withstand anything, one that has the ability, evidently, as we see in the Gospels, to appear and disappear at will, one that can eat but doesn't need to eat, 
one that can withstand the very brightness and the holiness of God and the presence of him forevermore. I'm looking forward to that new body. Everyone in the hospitals today ought to be looking forward to that new body. If they know Christ, they're going to receive that body that's going to be with him forever. And hopefully they will all receive Christ. But remember, but Jesus gives us so much more than the physical. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 4, after Jesus was baptized, it says that the Spirit drove him into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, and he fasted. And the devil tested him out there in the desert. And one of the testings, you remember, after not eating or drinking for 40 days, let me tell you, you do that, only God can sustain you. <laughs> And God sustained the Son of Man, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. But the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, or since you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. And Jesus answered him. And and here's our verse for the day. He said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. There is a big difference between the physical and the spiritual. And today we are going to be looking and hopefully finishing this chapter as we take communion looking at this idea of Jesus being the bread of life. Certainly he, was, he cares for our physical needs. He delights to do so because he made us this way. He created us into this world and he takes care of us. Has he taken care of you? Has he been faithful in taking care of you all these years? Have you really gone without for any length of time? I mean, maybe you've had a, you know, you, you squinted a little bit when the rent wasn't quite due when you were younger, but as you get older and more established, has he really ever left you in the lurch? He's never left me in the lurch. Even though I've been challenged, and as many of you have as well, even though he has always been there for me and he's always been there for you, he is Emmanuel, God with us. He will never leave us even to the end of the age. Amen. Look with me with verse 32. We, we picked up here, we'll pick up here from last week. Remember, Jesus had performed the miracle on the western side of the Sea of Galilee in a place called Bethsaida. Now he tells his disciples to go over. He walks on water to get over there, following them in the third or fourth watch of the night. He finally gets over to Capernaum on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and the people follow him there. And when they find him, they, they, you know, Jesus kind of upbraids them for the fact that they were just looking for a meal. And he doesn't have a problem with feeding people. But when their motivation is to crown him as king because he's fed their stomachs, and, and, and their expectation of him was even more than that. They wanted someone, remember, to deliver them from the yoke of Rome. And so their motives weren't quite right. Jesus had to kind of set the record straight to show them that, hey, I'm not here to be a military conqueror. Not yet. There's coming a time when he's coming back. When he comes back in his second coming, oh my, no military conqueror has ever seen anything like this, what's going to happen. But for that time, he didn't come to do that. He came to save the souls of men and women who were lost in their sin and and their depravity. And he was their sustenance. If they would hear it, he would be everything to them. He said, I am the bread of life. I am meant something to the Jew. And we'll look at that as we go. But let's look at verse 32. So at this time, when he was over in Capernaum, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you this bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. 
For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Notice this life that Jesus gives is spiritual life. It's eternal. It's not physical. It's not temporal. And again, certainly God has created us and he sustains us physically. But he's saying, I've got something more for you than just this earthly form. I got something more for you. In John chapter 4, if you remember uh, a month or so ago, we were in that chapter. And the woman at the well, Jesus said to her, give me something to drink. And she said to him, how, how are you, being a Jew, asked to drink for me, a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman goes on and she says, um, you know, give me this water, still thinking again in the physical. We're so hung up on the physical. And I guess we've got to be careful here because we do live in a physical world. We can't just think spiritually and be, you know, have my head in the clouds so much that I'm no earthly good. I mean, we live in the physical, so we have to deal with the physical. But we also ought to be thinking about what's happening after this physical life has expired. And most people don't give a thought to that until they're on their deathbed. And then they're crying out to God, and God will receive you if you're genuine and your heart is broken and you're really repentant. He will receive you. But Jesus goes on and tells this woman after this, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a fountain of living water springing up into everlasting life. And she said, sir, give me this water, still thinking in the physical, not understanding the ramifications of the spiritual reality of what Jesus was doing. And so when we think about living water and we think about the bread of life, it's speaking of the same thing. It's speaking of something other than something physical. It's speaking of the spiritual life that God wants to give us through the regeneration, through the, re through the rebirth, the new birth, being born again of the spirit of God. Are you born again this morning? Have you recognized that Jesus is the bread of life? That he is your sustenance? That he is your everything, actually? Notice what they said to him back in our text in verse 34. Lord, give us this bread always. A very similar response to the woman at the well. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Now he combines this idea of thirst and hunger together, the woman at the well with the, the living water, and now Jesus being the bread of life, he's both of those things. He who believes in me, Jesus said, will never hunger. He who believes in me also will never thirst. And I love the fact that Jesus came from Bethlehem. Do you know what Bethlehem means? The very name means house of bread. House of bread. That's what it means. And here he is, the one who was born into the world, the Savior, the Logos, the one who became flesh, the word that became flesh. He is born in a town called the house of bread. He being the bread of life, come down from heaven to give life to the world. And yet the prophets spoke all about this. And Micah, we know, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from old, from everlasting. That's Jesus, the bread of life, from Bethlehem, the house of bread. Jesus, the bread of life. 
And when he says, I am the bread of life, this is significant because there are, this is the first of the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. Throughout the Bible, we know that Jesus, or that we see that the Lord saying of himself that he is the Lord God of our fathers. He said, I am the Lord God of your fathers. I am the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am even the rose of Sharon. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the valley. Make straight the way of the Lord. But here in the Gospel of John, we see these seven new and they're very unique statements. I am the bread of life. This is the first one. I am the light of the world, he would say later. And then I am the door of the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. I'm the good shepherd. Isn't there, is there any other shepherd better than Jesus? I love him for that. He's always bringing me in and out and taking care of me, giving me everything I need. A good shepherd does that. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's the way. He even shows us the way. He's the truth, embodied in truth. He is truth, embodied, and he is the life. There's no other life outside of him. And then he goes on and he says, I am the true vine. I'm the one who gives you sustenance. The very root of the tree is bringing sustenance and life to the branches and the, and the leaves. He is the true vine. He is the one, and we need to abide in him. Amen. But I love when he says, I am, and this is significant because we know that in Exodus, when Moses was in the far side of the desert, Jesus met him in that fiery bush that was not consumed, and, 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 and God was challenging Moses to go and tell the children of Israel that he was going to deliver them. And Moses says, who am I going to say who sent me? Who, who am I, I going to tell them that's, good, that's the, the authority behind this? And Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me, what is your name? What shall I say to them? And God said to them, I am who I am. I'm whatever you need. Whatever it is that you need, I can be all of that and much, much more. I love the Lord. Do you love him? Hasn't he been taking care of you? Whatever you need, he's taking care of you. If you'll receive it. Some people stick their hands out and say, no, I can take care of this myself. And you know, he's such a gentleman, he's not going to force himself on you. But for the person who is wise, for the child of God who's got wisdom, they will cry out to God humbly and receive all that God has for them. And Jesus here was affirming, of course, his deity. And with Jesus, the search is over, isn't it? Is the search over for you, or are you still searching for something? Are you still trying to fill that God-shaped hole in your heart, the Jesus-shaped hole in your heart that everyone is trying to fill with material possessions, good careers, uh, wives and husbands, and, and good, you know, fun things and recreation and material possessions? Let me tell you, at the end of that stuff, is, 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 those are fine and good, all of that. But at the end, you've, it's all empty without Christ, without an understanding that he's given all those things for you to enjoy. Enjoy them without guilt, but understand this, that they cannot fulfill you ultimately. You must come to Christ. In fact, what did Peter say? <laughs> We're going to see this later on in this, in this chapter. Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? 
Is there any place else we should, we should go? The search is over for these guys. They found the Messiah. They found God Almighty. He says, you have the words of eternal life. And also we believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he, do you understand that many have searched by going to the watchtower of the Jehovah's Witnesses? They've searched the Mormons. They've gone to Buddha. They've gone to Allah. Some went to Jim Jones in the early 60s and 70s. Some went to David Koresh. Some went to the Beatles. Some experimented with crystals and marijuana, and they're doing that today in New York State. Experimenting with marijuana, trying to find themselves. They're never going to find themselves. Many have searched and searched for drugs, sex and rock and roll and thought that they could find their fulfillment but it never ever fulfills it only digs your grave deeper and deeper and deeper come to Jesus and your search is over amen back in our text it says but Jesus said I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do and yet do not believe and all that the father gives me will come to me And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Don't you love that? He'll never refuse you. No matter what you've done, even the most wicked in our culture, in history, some of the most wicked have come to Christ and God receives them. And that's a stumbling block for some people. Because they're thinking, if God will forgive that man for all the horrible deeds that he's done, then I can't worship a God like that. Well, you make your decision. But you ought to be thankful that God is so gracious. Because you one day are going to stand before him with all of your sins. And what is your, who's going to be your advocate? If it's not Jesus, there's no one. You're left alone in the dark. And you'll be cast into outer darkness and hell that burns forever and ever. Be thankful that God is so gracious. We need to think like God, not have him think like us. Aren't you glad that God doesn't think like us? He says, verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Notice Jesus' true origin. Verse 39, he says, This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all that he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Are you concerned as to whether you are one of Christ's or not? He hasn't lost any. Are you concerned that you might be lost? If you are, then receive him today into your heart. Whether you're here or whether you're online or whether you're going to hear this on the radio weeks or months from now, today is the day. You have to receive Christ. Receive him if you're concerned about that, and you should be. Receive him today. Worship him. Spend time with him. Abide in him. Trust him. Obey and cherish him. Isn't he wonderful? Can I get a hallelujah? Feel a little Baptist this morning. Can I get an amen? Yes, if you are in Christ, guess what? You are secure, wonderfully secure. Your salvation is assured on the merit and the work of yourself. No, it's assured by the work of Christ. John chapter 10, and I would encourage you, if you, maybe we'll start putting these slides up on the, uh, on the podcasts and all that stuff so you can, on our website so you can see them, but if you want any of these things, just Email me or text me and I'll send it to you, okay? Or or write these things down as you go through it again, as you listen to it again. But notice in John chapter 10, 
Your, your, your salvation is secure once you are in Christ. John, in his gospel in chapter 10, Jesus said in the 27th verse, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them, notice, I give them, Jesus says, eternal life that they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone, anyone, snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one, no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Are you wonderfully secure in Christ? Once you're in Christ, you are secure. Are you secure this morning? I pray that you all are. And if you're not, it's only a, it's only a prayer away. You can be sure. You can have the assurance of salvation. That's what the Bible is all about. It teaches the assurance of salvation. Because what God does is, is right. What God does is good. Yes, I can mess it up, but God is greater than I am. He responds to my heart and my prayer. And sometimes my actions just don't add up. But God even forgives me for my actions when I confess them. And he says, son, I love you and you're one of mine. Daughter, you're one of mine. And of all your faults and problems and things that you've done, even this very day, I forgive you. Will you confess your sin and come to me and receive everlasting life that you'll never thirst again? Will you do that? Will you? It's an act of the will. I have to engage with my will. It's not a, um, some kind of you know, intellectual assent. This is a real faith in God. You are secure. And he's lost none. He's lost none but the son of perdition. We know that. Peter told us in Acts chapter 1, it says, It is written, Let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it. Speaking of Judas... Let his habitation be desolate, speaking of Judas. In Psalm 109, let his days be few and let another take his office, speaking of Judas. Jesus in John 17 said that, and I skipped right over it. He said, those to whom the Lord you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, speaking of Judas Iscariot, the one who would betray him. But once you are a Christ, you are secure and forever secure. I like that because God holds me and you in the palm of his hand. Nothing can take us out of it. You can try to jump out of it, but he's got another hand, doesn't he? In verse 40 it says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Who sees the Son and believes, and I will raise him up at the last day. This phrase, the last day, is not a 24-hour period. But in this context, it is rather a period of time when God will resurrect the just and the unjust to their reward or punishment, respectively. This phrase, the last day, is spoken of in this context that I'm speaking six times in the book of John and no other place in the Bible whatsoever. It speaks of the resurrection, which you and I both know. At the rapture, the dead in Christ will rise. We which are alive and remain will be caught up and be changed in the twinkling of an eye. That is part of the event of the last day. Also, those who will be resurrected to condemnation, those who will be given a resurrected body and spend an eternity in hell apart from God, they also 
And this is what Jesus is referring to in the last day. In fact, all the passages, all six of them, where this phrase is used in this context speaks of the rapture or the resurrection of the just, except the very last one in John chapter 12, verse 48, where it says very plainly, He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word I have spoken will judge him in the last day. That's speaking of that great white throne judgment that unbelievers will stand before and the books will be opened of all their deeds and they will be sentenced from there to outer darkness and the lake of fire. Do you think that pleases the Lord? It doesn't. It doesn't please him whatsoever. Verse 41, it says, The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And I find this interesting because they've been looking for the Messiah. The Jews, they were waiting for their long-awaited Messiah for a long time, fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies. And now he has come and he's alive and in the flesh. Right before them, the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, dwelt among them. There he is. And they reject him. They murmur. Because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven, which brings to their mind Exodus chapter 16. I would encourage you to read that in context of what we're looking at this morning. We looked at it last week, but it's when God provided the manna, that substance that they called, what's that? They came out of their tents one night and God said he was going to do it and he did it. And they came out and they looked and they said, what's that? And that's what the word means, manna. means, what's that? What is it? And they used it. They ate it. God sustained them through the desert for 40 years on manna. They had manicotti, manna burgers, manna pasta. It was manifold food. Verse 42 says this. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? See, Joseph was not Jesus' real father. He was just a caregiver. And they stumbled over this idea. They stumbled over this idea that Jesus was born to the Virgin Mary. Again, fulfilling the scriptures. What does it say in Isaiah 7, 14? You know this very well. The Lord himself will give you a sign, Ahaz. Behold, the, the virgin, notice. Not just a virgin, a definite article. The virgin, specifically Mary and only her. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and, shall, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. We see in other verses in Isaiah chapter 11 where it speaks of him coming through the line of Jesse, which is David's father that David would come through Jesse and certainly Jesus through the line of Judah would come through that is not this the Jesus the son of Joseph whose father and mother we know how is it that he says I've come down from heaven yes he's making the claim very clearly that just as God provided manna in the wilderness that he was providing his own son, that God himself would come and provide spiritual, everlasting life for his people. Not only for the Jew, but for the Gentile as well. You and I, I'm a Gentile. 
<clears throat> but Jesus had siblings, didn't he? He did, and this is a shock to the Roman Catholic Church. Not to be too hard on them, but notice in just one of these, it lists the names of Jesus' brothers. Doesn't give the name of his sisters, but his brothers. In Matthew chapter 13, it says, They said, Is not this the carpenter's son? And is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joses, Simon, and Judas, or Judah, or Jude? And his sisters, plural, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And these other verses speak of those names again and tell us that Jesus had sisters and brothers none of this immaculate you know the the perpetual virginity of of mary no she was a virgin when she had jesus conceived in her womb by the spirit but after jesus was born mary and joseph had other children she needed a savior joseph needed a savior the one that she bore was the one who saved her soul the one who saves us all According to what? Tradition? Something handed down through oral tradition? <laughs> no. Through the word of God. Through eyewitnesses. There's no greater witness than that. So, verse 43, Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do you not murmur among yourselves? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will, notice again, I will raise him up at the last day. If you're a believer, you will be raised up. And the Lord is the one who draws us to Jesus. He is the one. Because if he didn't do it, I wouldn't have come to him. The Bible is so true. In Psalm 14, it says, The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any who understood, who seek God. And what is the response of God? They've all turned aside. They have all together become corrupt. There is none good, no, not one. Boy, that's just a blast to my self-esteem. <laughs> I thought I was something and now I'm nothing. Oh, it's good to be nothing. And let God be everything and let him build you up, right? So much for self-esteem. Don't fall into the, that nonsense. Amen? Can I get an amen in the house? Amen. Yes, thanks. I'm going to do that to make sure you're awake too. But in the prophet Hosea said this, God speaking of Israel, he says, I drew them with cords of love, with bonds of love, with bands of love. He's the one who draws us. He's the one who does it. Man in his own heart does not come to Christ. We are drawn. What did Jesus say that night in the, in the, in the uh, upper room? He told his disciples, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, the paraclete, that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. Guess what? For he dwells with you. Para, he dwells with you. He comes alongside of us. Do you remember those days before you gave your heart to Christ that the, the, the Spirit of God was walking alongside of you? Perhaps you didn't notice it. Perhaps you weren't even cared or concerned about it. I remember the days when I, people were praying for me. There was a young man named David Rickards. And the Lord was walking alongside of me all that time, and I had no idea He walked alongside you until the day that you finally gave it up. I want to encourage you to give it up. <laughs> if you're not one of Christ, give it up. 
Give up your life and give it to him. Receive him as your Lord and Savior. Amen. You must, you must be born again. It's not an option. It's not like you have a smorgasbord and you can just pick and choose. No, if you're going to spend, everybody wants to go to heaven, but they don't want to go through Christ. They want to live like hell and then somehow expect at the, you know, at the last judgment that they're going to be able to somehow appease God. Maybe give them a bribe or something. I can write you a $2 million check. I can write it off. I got a 501c3. And the Lord's going, you can keep your money. It'll perish with you. I want your heart. I want your life. Give your heart and your life to Christ. But he came alongside of us. And he drew us. He wooed us by the Spirit of God to a right relationship with him. And notice in verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught by God. And therefore everyone, notice, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Notice, they learn and they hear what? Through the word of God. Not that anyone, verse 46, has seen the Father. No one has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. The Bible tells us that God is spirit. God the Father is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. In Exodus 33, verse 20, it says, But he said, You cannot see my face, God tells Moses, for no man can see me and live. No one can see God the Father and live in this flesh. That's why when God would pass by, Moses said, I want to see your glory, Lord. He says, You can't see my glory. If you saw the face, if you saw even the beginning of my glory, Moses, you would die in an instant. But I'll do this for you. I'm going to stick you. I'm going to turn you, you're going to see the hinder parts of my glory, and I'll make sure that you don't die. He did the same thing with Elijah. He covered his eyes while God passed by, and he saw the hinder parts of God's glory. We cannot stand in his presence and live in this flesh and see God. No one has seen God the Father and lived on this earth. That's why we need a new body a new body that doesn't get sick, a new body that can withstand the brightness. The brightness of who God is. In 1 Timothy 6, verse 16, Paul says, God alone has immortality dwelling in unapproachable light, for no man has seen or can see him. But we see Jesus, the word become flesh. We see him. There's a man in heaven right now that we could see, if he was to manifest himself here, we could see him. But we need a new body to see God the Father. We're going to need a whole new existence made up of completely different materials to withstand the brightness. I love that. I don't know about you, but I just, I get a little goofy when I think about that. Can I get an amen in the house? Yeah. We're going to stand before him. And I'm not going to disintegrate out of his brightness. Rather, I'm going to be hitting the dirt. <laughs> And I'm going to have my face prostrate on the ground. Be able to withstand the glory. Verse 47, most assuredly, Jesus says, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Notice again that it's faith, it's belief in Jesus, not our works. The only work that we are to do, Jesus already told us what it is. Jesus said, this is the work of God. And what is it? That you believe in him whom he has sent. No flesh is going to glory in his presence based on what they've done. 
This is the work of God. Believe in him, the only begotten one, son of God, son of man, the wonderful, righteous Jesus Christ, the righteous, the only potentate, he alone. Verse 48 again, he says it again. He says it again, I am the bread of life. And with your, and your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they are dead. Notice he's comparing physical and spiritual. They ate the manna, the bread from heaven. They ate it and they died. But I'm giving you eternal life. I'm giving you eternal life. And this is the bread, verse 50, which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven, and if anyone eats of this bread, Jesus says, he will live forever. And the bread which I give, I shall give as my flesh, which I shall give to the life of the world. And the Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They all knew that cannibalism and drinking blood was forbidden in the law. We know that's one of the reasons why God brought the Israelites out of Egypt to displace Those seven nations in Canaan, because of their pagan idolatrous worship services, they did involve themselves in cannibalism. They did drink blood to pacify the gods or to in their worship of their false gods. In Genesis, it tells us that everything that lives shall be food for you, God tells Adam. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs, but you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is the blood. He goes on in Leviticus chapter 17. Whatever man of the house of Israel or the strangers who dwell among you who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off, literally have him executed from among his people, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I will give it to you, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, No one among you shall eat blood. No stranger who dwells among you shall eat blood. Whatever man of the children of Israel or the strangers who dwell among you who hunts and catches any bird or animal that may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it with dust. For it is the life of all flesh. Its blood sustains its life. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any flesh. For the life of all flesh is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. I, I kind of feel, feel like I get the point. And so this is in the law. So when Jesus is sharing this very hard saying, they have a right to be a little concerned if they didn't really know him. And if they just stick around a little bit longer and and listen to what he's saying, they will understand. He's not encouraging cannibalism. He's not encouraging them to do anything of that sort because he's going to tell us and we're going to get there and I'm I'm not going to spoil it for you. Verse 53, then Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, notice this is a hard saying, knowing what you know, knowing what's in the word of God and they knowing very well what Moses had said in the law, Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Oh my goodness. Everyone's starting to pick up stones. Ah, but wait. But wait, there's more. Verse 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Are you abiding in Jesus? 
As the living Father sent me, and as I live, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down. Notice past tense, because Jesus is there before him. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. So do you think that he's speaking in a very literal sense, or is he speaking in a spiritual sense? Now, I've already primed the pump. We, we already know that he is already speaking in spiritual, but they're thinking, they're listening to it. Just imagine this. When you reread this passage, think of the Jew, think of those other disciples other than the 12. Even the 12 were some, somewhat confused, but they were hanging on there because they knew that there was something that Jesus was going to share. They knew him better than this. But the other disciples, they're like, get this guy out of our way. Yeah, he, was, <laughs> he fed us and he did all these wonderful things, but you know, this is just too much. I just can't take it. I can't do this. This is just, I'm drawing the line in the sand. And you know, praise the Lord for that. <laughs> because the Lord drew his line of demarcation. He drew the line in the sand and at this point, he was wildly popular. Any other man would have avoided this discourse. Any other man would have been a fool. His, his advisor to Jesus would say, you know, it's probably a better idea that you don't mention anything about people eating your flesh and drinking your blood. You'll have a lot more followers, Jesus. Trust me on this one. Do you think Jesus consulted anyone but his father? Do you think Jesus was worried that now he had all these people? Oh, everybody passed the hat. Let's get some money. Do you think he was concerned about all that? Do you think he was concerned about the number of people? Do you think he was thinking to himself, well, at least they're coming? No, he was interested. He was going to weed out that multitude, and there would be less people following him after this than more people following him. And boy, does that fly in the face of today's evangelism. Today, they'll do anything to get you to come. Jesus said, this is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your father ate and are dead, but he who eats this bread, Jesus said, they will live forever. And these things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Remember, because that's where he was. We visit this synagogue in Capernaum when we go to Israel. Hope you come with us next March. Call Calvary Chapel Finger Lakes. We'll hopefully get out sign-up sheets or itineraries sometime soon. But we visit this very synagogue, the very synagogue where this happened. And other things, Jesus walked on the very floors that you're going to walk on. And part of the walls there and some of the columns, the roof is all missing. But the very floor, this very place was where this happened. And you would see it. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum that he is the bread of life. And notice verse 60, as a result of this hard saying, and it is a hard saying, therefore many of his disciples, not the twelve, but the others, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? Lord, you're speaking in a parable-ish kind of way. We know you're speaking spiritually, not physical. I hope you're speaking spiritually, Lord. Do you really mean that we're going to, you know, you're going to get out your buck knife and take a piece off and pass it around and everybody nibble on it? I mean, how is this going to work? There's only so much of you. 
Only so much blood. You only got a few pints of blood in you. How's this going to work? There's a lot of people here. When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? And I'm so glad for the next verse. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits anything. The words that I speak to you guys, they are spirit and they are life. Oh, thank God he said that. Even his disciples are kind of pensive. He could tell they were getting a little nervous. Lord, please qualify that statement. Getting a little nervous here. Don't you know you're offended, the Pharisees? Oh, I offended somebody. Oh, I'm so sorry. Jesus is never sorry about offending people with the truth. The truth, the gospel, is offensive. It's offensive to your old, stubborn, rascal nature. Because I have one too. That old nature has been crucified. It is still present, but the Spirit of God is like a wonderful heavenly gorilla standing over the top of that old nature, saying, you will not express yourself. And, God, and the, the scary part is I have the ability to take that, the Spirit of God and just kind of nudge him off and say, I want to, you know, I want to do this thing, and, or I want to say this thing, or I want to express myself. And God says, is that what you really want? Are you going to grieve my spirit after all I've done? Yes. I will, and I shall, and I'll probably do it again. Isn't that the truth of us? That rascal side of us. Paul knew it very well. Why is the good that I do, why, isn't it, why don't I do the, the things that I do, the, the good things? Why is it that I do the bad things? And why is it are the bad things? You know, I, I, I don't want to do those, but I end up doing those and not doing the good things. Oh, wretched man that I am. Thank God for the Spirit of God. Thank God for forgiveness. Thank God for the security of salvation. Thank you, Lord, for this process of sanctification. But there are some of you who do not believe, Jesus said, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore, I have said to you that, you sh- that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him from my father. And um, it is true. No one can come to him. And those who hold to a very strict and uh, extreme Calvinistic point of view might use this as their proof text uh, concerning their position that God is sovereign and man has no say in his decision concerning salvation. But if we look at the totality of scripture, we see that both are true. God is almighty and sovereign, and yet man has a responsibility to respond and to do. And God has the unusual opportunity of living outside of time, so he knows the end from the beginning. He doesn't make anybody do anything. He allows the person to make their own decision. I don't know why Calvinists don't understand that. They forget the vantage point of God. That really ends it for me, because if he's outside of time and he can see the end from the beginning, he can, with 100% accuracy, just like it says in Psalm 139, he can tell me what I'm going to say tomorrow. I don't even know what I'm going to say tomorrow. 
But he knows because he's already seen it. He doesn't control in that sense. He doesn't make me do anything. He lets me be who I am, but he knows. That, that, to me, that's just baffling. But that's who our God is. And the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. And he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If he's not willing that any should perish, then it stands to reason that God has given us a choice. And God is sovereign, but man is also responsible for his destiny. Yes, he calls, and God has given him men and women. Men and women. In John's Gospel, he says, For God so loved the world that whosoever... Does that sound like only a certain group of people or whosoever? It means whosoever. In Joel chapter 2, And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord. Oh, does that mean just a certain group of people? Whoever. It still means the same in the original language. Peter quoted that in Acts chapter 2 verse 21. So did Paul in Romans 10 verse 31, or 13, excuse me. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever, not just a group of people. So verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. What a tragedy. And yes, John 6, verse 66. Six being the number of man. 666, what does that remind you of? Yes, the mark of the beasts. Isn't it interesting that this verse signifies the people walking away from him. The spirit of Antichrist consuming their hearts, not allowing them to see, not willing to see, but rather believing their own things and going their own way. You can look at that in Revelation chapter 13. Then Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go away? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine Jesus? The other multitude, you can sort of understand. They weren't really walking with him. They weren't with him for three and a half years or whatever. But the mixed multitude around them, you know, finally, they, you know, many of them go away. The majority of them go away. And Jesus looks at them and he says, do you, are you going to go away as well? And I love what Peter said. Simon Peter answered and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? There's no other place for us to go. There's no other way to go. He is the way, the truth, the life. What other truth is there? What other life is there? There is no other life. There is only death apart from Christ. Also, Peter says, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Later on, we find out in the chronology here of the Gospels, we find out that Peter, later on, in Matthew chapter 16, when they were up in the northern part of Israel in Caesarea Philippi, he said the very same thing. Remember, Jesus said to them, he said to his disciples, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Well, you just gave the answer. I'm the son of man, I'm the son of God. But remember, they said, some say you're John the Baptist, or this or that, and Simon Peter said, you are the Christ. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. In verse 70, Jesus answered and said, did I not choose you, twelve, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? 
What a mystery, isn't it, to think that God would choose a man who he knew would ultimately rebel against him and betray him? Do you think he knew when he was up in that mountain the night before he chose, the morning, the early morning, that he, before he chose his disciples, the twelve that would be with him? Do you think he knew at that point? Do you think communing with the Father, the Father said, Son, I want you to choose this one. Because this is the one whose heart he does. You know, Judas didn't even know his heart at that moment, but God knew. And Judas had an opportunity to come to Christ. He had an opportunity to receive Christ. He had every opportunity just as the other disciples did. He performed miracles with the other one that when they sent him out two by two, he was a partaker of those things. And yet, he would refuse Christ. He would betray him for 30 pieces of silver, for money. Everyone has their price. Judas had his price. And it was Judas... And he spoke, verse 71, of Judas, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. So we know, I want to encourage you, as you read the Bible, do you notice something here in this last verse? Just as by way of showing you something, you probably know this already, but where it says, for it was he who would betray him. That means that this gospel was written last. It was written after Judas betrayed him after the resurrection, after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, even after the ascension, this gospel was written last. And John is speaking. He's saying this is the one who would betray him. And we know that. And Judas Iscariot. Iscariot is not his last name, by the way. Iscariot is the town that he came from. Judas was his first name. Iscariot was, Judas was very popular, that name. In that time, because remember, in the second century BC, there was a man by the name of Judas Maccabeus who led a revolt against the Seleucid dynasty, against Antiochus Epiphanes IV, who slaughtered the pig in the temple and caused the sacrifices to cease. Remember that. That event already happened. And Judas Maccabeus rose up with some other Jews and they overthrew them. And these men were heroes. And up until this point, people named their child their male child, Judas, because he was a hero at that time. But does anybody name their child Judas after the crucifixion? Nobody names their child Judas anymore because of the connotation of Judas Iscariot, this one. We're going to take communion this morning. You recall that night before Jesus was taken, that when they celebrated the Passover meal that evening with his disciples in the upper room, it says that when the, when the hour had come, this is in Luke chapter 22, when the hour had come, Jesus sat down and the twelve apostles with him, and he said to them, With fervent desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I say to you that I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Speaking of the millennium. And then he took the cup and he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Again, speaking of the thousand-year reign at the end of the tribulation period when Jesus, with all of us, comes back to the earth 
physically. And he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, This is my body which is given for you. Notice what he said, Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. I'm so blessed that we took communion today on a day that we were covering this. I, I, um, it's the perfect time to take it. There's really not an unperfect time to take it, but this was so sweet to think of as we spoke of Jesus being the bread of life. He's the very sustenance of our being even going forward as we rely upon him, as we pray to Christ, as we pray to him, as we, as we learn more about him, as we allow his spirit to have free reign in our hearts, as we read his word and allow it to change us, in this way we are eating the blood, or drinking the blood of Christ, and eating his body. We do it symbolically, Right? That night he took bread and he tore it and he said, this is my body, not me, but the bread. Take it and eat it. This is my body broken for you. And then this is the blood of the new covenant, this chalice that he would pass around as they each took a sip of it in a pre-COVID environment. They passed around the cup and each of them took a sip from it. They probably didn't even wipe the rim. They just passed it all around to the 12 and they each took a drink. This is the covenant of the New Testament in my blood. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He speaks of this moment in Jesus' life, and he said, speaking of Christ, he said, This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Till he comes. Till he comes. We know that he died, but we proclaim the death because it was the death that paid for my sin and your sin. And because of that, we are right in the sight of God based on our faith and based on the work of Christ, based our belief in him for what he did. And we will come back with him and we will have it for the first time. Are you looking forward to that time in the millennium? A thousand year reign of Christ? Back to this earth, folks, in new bodies. Yes, you, 2.0. We will be back in new bodies, and we will, on this very earth, we will take this, these elements as we're taking right now. We will do it with the Son of God, our Savior, the Lion of Judah. We will take it with him together at that time. Let's partake of the, of the bread. And the blood of the new covenant, which is the very blood of Christ, we do this in remembrance of him, proclaiming the Lord's death till he comes. Let's partake of the, of the juice. There's a verse in the Bible... And this is just off the cuff. I forget where it is. But David speaks of the reins within him. My reins, uh, I'm, I'm drawing a blank here, but my reins 
worship you or my, my in the in the depths of my reins and inside of me and and I've heard or I've looked this word up reins and it speaks of kidneys and from what I understand for those of you who are medical people maybe you know this and I believe this is true the kidneys are the most insulated things of all your organs where they are located and it speaks of the very center the most private, the most area and covered and protected. And I think of when we take the bread and we take the juice, we are taking it down deep within us. And that's really what this signifies, is that it's the very nature of God, his, who he is. We take it down, it's symbolic of what we need to be doing spiritually, letting Christ be everything to us from the very innermost part of our being. So allow the Lord to do that in your life. And even if you've been a Christian for some time, don't get complacent. Keep pressing forward for that prize of the high calling in Christ Jesus. Stay in the game don't ever lay back and rest. You'll have plenty of time to rest. Stay in it, folks. Stay close to Christ. Do the things that you know are going to please him. Pray and seek and, and get motivated and continue to work for him. Remember, we work for him. We don't work for Calvary Chapel. We don't work for anything. We work for him. I work for him. Let's continue to work for Jesus and help us to continue to feast on the bread of life. I pray that he is everything to you and that he encourages you today. Let's abide in him this week and every week. Just continue to abide. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you for this morning and we thank you for this discourse. Lord, you are the bread of life. And Lord, you have taken up residence by your spirit deep within our hearts. And Lord, we are so blessed, so thankful. We would, now that we know you, Lord, there's no other place, like Peter said, that we could go. There's no other place that we would want to go. There's no one else. There's no other method. There's no other religion. There's no one like you. And we come to you with open hearts, even as children of God, seeking our Father in heaven who alone can sustain us and give us everything we need physically, spiritually, emotionally, in every possible way. You are the great I am, the one who is the ego I me. You are the great I am. Lord, be our everything today. And may we rely upon you. Have your way with us today. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said? Amen. 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 God bless you.